Now, friends, today we come to this 18th chapter of First Chronicles, and we've come here again to another new section, and we have David's wars, 18 through chapter 20. Now, somebody, I'm sure, is going to say at this point, you've been emphasizing that in First Chronicles and in Second Chronicles, we see God's viewpoint. How can wars be fitted into this? Well, let me make this preliminary statement. You see, why come wars? James, you know, in a very practical manner, he asked that question. And he not only asked it, but he gives the answer. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence? Even are your lusts that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. In other words, today the thing that has been the background of war has been the sinful heart of man. And that when sin came into the world, why, that was the problem. And it's the sin question, not the war problem. It's very easy to protest wars. And there have been a great deal of protesting wars. But you don't get rid of wars by protesting them. And you may bring a war to an end, one war, but another's going to start because the problem is in the sinful heart of man. And you and I live in a world where the Lord Jesus said, A strong man arm keepeth his household. Why? Because they're enemies. You see, we're not living in an ideal situation today. The millennial has not come yet, and man can't produce it. Only the Prince of Peace will bring peace to this earth. And until then, while we'll do well to keep our powder dry, we'll do well to keep our atom bombs, by the way, because there are enemies in the world and there's hatred in the world. And the very interesting thing is that when man sinned, God said immediately to Satan, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, her seed and thy seed. Now, friends, you can't remove that. The Lord Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sower. And until sin is removed from this earth, until wickedness is removed from this earth, they're going to be war. Wars are the symptoms. The disease is sin, and that is the problem. Now, God faces up to it. David is becoming now a man that God has blessed. And as a result, their enemies round about. Long as he was a little petty king, tribal king, why, they paid very little attention to him. But he's having problems. And God lets us know that he took note of the fact that even David's kingdom was in a world where there was war, and that you do well to keep locks on your house. I get rather amused and have been amused at people. They don't think that we should use chemical warfare over in a foreign country, but they feel like that the Molotov cocktail is all right in this country. At least they try to explain it away, say, we just don't understand how these people feel. May I say, we do understand how these people feel. Sinners. That is the problem, and the problem is that. Now let's look at David's wars here. Chapter 18, 
Now after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and her towns out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab. And the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. And David smote Hadareza, king of Zobah, unto Hamath, as he went to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. And David took from him a thousand chariots. Now, these are the spoils of war. And David also hewed all the chariot horses, but reserved of them a hundred chariots. Now, why did David get rid of the horses? Well, because God had told the king never to multiply horses or wives. Now, his son later on, Solomon, multiplied both. I was at Megiddo in the Valley of Esdraelon, and the most prominent thing in the ruins of old Megiddo are the stables of Solomon. That's where he kept horses. In fact, you find these stables at Jerusalem. He had them all over the land. And Solomon went in that business, but David did not. David was zealous to obey God, but he is a hot-headed man, as we're going to see. And David made mistakes, and he's in a very real world. Now, you find here, as you read this chapter that he gets a great deal of the spoils of war. And these were used later on. I think that by the time that David had died, that Israel had pretty much accumulated the gold market. I think that the gold was there in Jerusalem in that day. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadarezim, brought them to Jerusalem. Likewise, from Timnath and from Chun, cities of Hadareza, brought David very much brass, wherewith Solomon made the brazen sea and the pillars and the vessels of brass. You see, David accumulated all of this as the spoils of war. Now, verse 11, "...them also King David dedicated unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he brought from all these nations, from Edom, from Moab." the children of Ammon, from the Philistines and from Amalek. Now, every one of these nations we know from the past were enemies of Israel, and they fought against them. Now, David is given the victory over all of these, and there comes to him the spoils of war, so that we see that this man, in order to become a king over that land, there are enemies to be driven out. Now, the child of God has enemies. We're told today to put on the whole armor of God. Now, our enemy today just doesn't happen to be a flesh and blood enemy. Our enemy today is a spiritual enemy. And that's the point Paul made. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood's not our enemy. But there is a spiritual enemy. But against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, friends, this is the situation that you and I are in a world. Now, this idea today that the Christian can sit down and twiddle his thumb and you can compromise with everything that comes along, you're entirely wrong. <laughs> you're going to have to stand for something. I tell you that today we need folk that will stand up and be counted. We've got a lot of folk doing what I heard a 
country preacher down in Georgia say some time ago, he says, a lot of people, instead of standing on the promises, they're sitting on the premises. And I'm afraid that that is absolutely true. Today, we need to stand for something. Now, David is doing that. These are enemies, and these are enemies that must be overcome. Now, we have an incident given that reveals to me that God does have a sense of humor, and yet it's a tragic thing, and it reveals that David is a pretty hot-headed man. He's very much of a human being, by the way. And here's an instance. God records that David may be very much at fault, but it's a very interesting incident in a way. And it reveals also the fact that David is a very big-hearted man. Now, let me begin reading chapter 19, verse 1. Now, it came to pass after this that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his stead. Now, Ammon was an enemy of Israel. Now, David didn't want to make war. (laughs) David's on the defense, as we've seen most of the time in most of his life. He was. God's man will find himself on the defense. If you notice... When we're put on the armor of God today, what does it do? To march? No, to stand. We're to stand. That's the important thing. The tragedy of the hour is God's people won't stand. Now, David had these enemies, but David wanted to be a friend now of Ammon. And what happened when Nahash died and his son reigned in his stead? David said, I will show kindness unto Hanan the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. If you go back in the history of David, you remember that when David crossed over, Ammon was kind to him. And David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. So the servants of David came into the land of the children of Ammon, the Hanan, to comfort him. Now notice what happened. But the princes of the children of Ammon said to Hanan, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father, that he hath sent comforters unto thee? Are not his servants come unto thee for to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? Now, you see, this is a pretty serious charge that these men, apparently young men, that are around the new king, they say, David is not your friend. He wasn't a friend of your father. And these are spies. Now, what did they do? Wherefore, Hanan took David's servants and shaved them. Now, that was a disgrace for a Jew. He was told never to trim his beard, you remember. And he shaved these, and he cut off their garments in the midst hard by their buttocks and sent them away. And believe me, that's embarrassing, friend. You can imagine these fellows. That was not a day of nudism, and they were pretty embarrassed, you know, to make a public appearance. And so, actually, this was an insult. This is an insult you can't pass by. But David's a red-headed fellow. He's hot-headed. And notice, then there went certain and told David how the men were served. And he sent to meet them. These men, they wouldn't come back into the presence of David. They wouldn't come into Jerusalem. They are not only embarrassed, they're disgraced. And in their shame, they are not going to make a public appearance. And David knew that. And David went to see them. He sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. Go into retirement here. Stay here until your beards grow out again. And then, of course, 
you're going to have to get a new uniform. I want to tell you, they were disgraced, and they were disgraced. And when the children of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David, you see, word got back. He said, you ought to hear what David said when you did this to his servant. Hanan and the children of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire them chariots and horsemen out of Mesopotamia and out of Syria and out of Zobah. Now, you see, instead of David being the one who wanted to make war, this new king wanted to. He wanted to demonstrate that he could overthrow David. And so now, knowing that what he's done, and I'm confident he knew what the outcome would be, that he is disgraced. In fact, it's an insult to the nation of Israel and an insult to David, the thing that he's done. He knew that. And now he sends and hires an army from Syria to help Ammon to overcome David, you see. Well, when David heard of it, verse 8 now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty man. There's an army that's gathering against him. And so David goes out to fight them. David's hot-headed, though, about all this. And the children of Ammon came out, put the battle in array before the gate of the city, and the kings that were come were by themselves in the field. But when Joab saw that the battle was set against him before and behind, he chose out of all the choice of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. Now, the Syrians had the best army. So he took the best of his forces and put them over against the Syria. And they're coming down from the north, and up from the south comes Ammon. And now the rest of the people he delivered under the hand of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in array against the children of Ammon. And his strategy was very good. He said, now, his brother, if you are overcome, I'll come to your aid. But if I'm overcome, you come to my aid, and we'll play it that way. In other words, they'd put their force against where the attack came. That was a strategy that was used by both sides in the Civil War. It was used at Chattanooga, there, which was the determining battle of the Civil War. And this was his strategy. Now he says, verse 13, "...be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God, and let the Lord do that which is good in his sight." So Joab and the people that were with him drew nigh before the Syrians unto the battle they fled before him. Now, Joab was a real army man. He was a real soldier. And he had been trained under David. He and David were probably tops as far as military men were concerned. Now, when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, they likewise fled before Abishai's brother, and they entered into the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. He came back to Jerusalem for report. When the Syrians saw that they were put to the worst before Israel, they sent messengers and drew forth the Syrians that were beyond the river. In other words, they sent for help. Now, it was told David, and he gathered all Israel. He passed over Jordan. He came upon them and set the battle in array against them. So when David had put the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. But the Syrians fled before Israel. David slew of the Syrians. 7,000 men which fought in chariots, 40,000 footmen, and killed Shophak, the captain of the host. And when the servants of Hadarezah saw that they were put to the worst, 
before Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. Neither would the Syrians help the children of Ammon anymore. Now, may I say that David did not want to go to battle. And here's a tremendous lesson. Remember, you're getting God's viewpoint now. He didn't want to fight. God's making that clear. He wanted peace with Ammonites. He made a gesture of peace. Now, he received an insult. He's a hot-headed man. And so, he sees the enemies preparing to come against him. So, David sends out Joab, and the enemy flees. But that doesn't end it. They are getting now help. They're getting allies on their side. So, David now leads into battle. I tell you, when David led into battle, he went into battle to win, friends. I think it's tragedy for any nation, and that includes our nation, to fight a war not to win. How tragic that is. My friend, you don't fight wars just to fight wars. You fight wars to get a victory. I think that's what General Douglas MacArthur said. That was the statement he made in the Korean War. And our nation has gotten itself into tragic circumstances because of that. You see, if we'd have won the war, we'd have spared thousands of lives. A great many people come along and read this and say, Oh, God is bloody. No, God's not bloody, friend. He knows the way to save human life. And the way to save human life is to win the battle, is to win the war. And we're in a sinful world. We're not living in a world where everything is a Sunday school picnic. It's a pretty brutal world. It's a mean old world that we're in. And any time that you want to say with Browning, God's in his heaven and all's right with the world, you're not quoting Scripture and you're not giving God's viewpoint. You're getting God's viewpoint here. And personally, I don't know about you, but I think it's tremendous. I think this is without doubt one of those great sections of the Word of God. This day of permissiveness, this day of the foul mouth, this day that we no longer have personal honesty and personal integrity and human sincerity. And we're told that our country is sick. Well, we have the greatest nation. The problem is individual. The problem is personal. We are permitting this awful permissiveness. We're in a world of sin. We're in a world where laws should be enforced and where criminals should be punished. Oh, it's not ideal. God didn't say it was ideal. God says, as long as you're in a world like this, a strong man armed will keep his house. And you're getting God's viewpoint here, by the way, which is quite interesting. Now today, friends, I come to First Chronicles, the 20th chapter, and we find that there are two enemies. They were the constant, persistent and seem to be the eternal enemies of the nation Israel, and especially of David. And one was the Ammonites, and the other were the Philistines. And may I say that there's no such thing as compromise, that there are certain things that have to be fought out. And we're fighting against spiritual wickedness today in the high places. If you're a child of God, you're also a soldier of God. That's the reason we're enjoying put on the armor of God. 
We're not to march against anyone. We're to stand. Stand. And that is the thing that's important today. If you stand for the things of God, you're in a battle, my friend. You're in a war, whether you like it or not. And the war may cease in Asia and in Africa and Europe and in the Western Hemisphere, but there'll still be war as long as there's evil in the world. Now, will you notice, I begin reading at verse 1, "...and it came to pass that after the year was expired, at the time that kings go out to battle, Joab led forth the power of the army, wasted the country of the children of Ammon, and came and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem. Joab smote Rabbah and destroyed it." Now, we find here that this seems rather strange, does it not? It looks like Joab was the one that was the aggressor in this particular case. And he may have been, but if you are wanting to blame him, then you've forgotten what we looked at last time. You remember that David made a friendly gesture to the young king of Ammon? The old king died, and David sent his condolences and his sympathy, and he was insulted. And immediately the new king came against David in warfare. And so this is just a continuation of the warfare, my friend. There's no compromise with evil. As long as there's light and darkness, there must be. As long as there's right and wrong, right and wrong just can't agree with each other. The idea today that these two can get along is wrong. How can two walk together except they be agreed? And if you're walking with evil, it's because you've compromised with it. You're in agreement with it. My friend, this is something today the world's forgetting. It's almost, well, it would be amusing if it wasn't so tragic that there's so many people that are horrified at war when it's across the ocean. But when there's lawlessness in our streets, we must learn to understand these folk today. We just must learn to appreciate them. May I say that today there is hypocrisy in our contemporary culture that is sickening beyond degree. And if it's wrong across the ocean, it's wrong here. And evil must be opposed. Lawlessness must be opposed. It has to be. There cannot be right unless wrong is opposed. Now you have here the other persistent enemy of Israel and of David, the Philistines. Verse 4, It came to pass after this that there arose war at Gezer with the Philistines. And we are told that the children of the giant were subdued. You remember this was the place where David had slain the giant. But now we find that the children of the giant are also slain. They were a constant enemy of the children of Israel. That is the message, I think, in this chapter here for you and me today. Now we change the subject altogether. When we come to chapter 21, David's sin in numbering the people. And all the way through here, I've called your attention to the fact that in Chronicles 
we get God's perspective rather than man's. While in the two books of Samuel and Kings, we get man's perspective, man's viewpoint. Now we get God's viewpoint. Now back in Second Samuel, the 24th chapter, why we saw something about David's sin and numbering the people. But there was, very frankly, a little confusion in our hearts and minds. Why was that a sin? And we made a suggestion or two then. But now, from God's viewpoint, we find out why it was a sin. And we now get God's estimate before it was man's estimate. And before it was the political side. Now we get the spiritual side. And we find here that we have an explanation of David's sin. Now, we are told back in 1 Samuel, we see David acting independently. And Israel's sin, and God permitted David to be the instrument. But there's something else here. Notice verse 1 of chapter 21. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now we have found the culprit here. This was satanic. Satan was back of this. Now this throws light upon David's great sin. You notice that it's not in Chronicles here, blot out my transgressions, my iniquities. That was his sin with Bathsheba. But here, Satan was back of David's sin. And I think there's something else that we need to consider here. And the question is, again, why was it a sin for David to number the children of Israel? Why was that a sin? And so I want us to look at that in a very definite way. Why was it a sin for David to take a census? All right, verse 2, And David said to Joab, And to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And that's quite interesting here. Moses took two censuses. In the book of Numbers, he took a census at the beginning of the wilderness march, and then a census at the end of the wilderness march. And actually, there was nothing wrong with that one. At least God did not find fault with that. But here, now there are those that say that the reason David did this was because there was pride. Well, notice this, verse 3, And Joab answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? And here is the first man to oppose the computer. David wanted statistics. And there is a sin of statistics today. I tell you, everything is being computerized today. All of us are, for that matter. And there are those that say pride is the explanation given I think more often than any other. And I think it enters in. I'm of the opinion that we can certainly say that pride entered into this. But that certainly is not the full explanation by any means. I'd like to just turn to a passage of Scripture 
over in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, saith the Lord. Now, God was not pleased when David took a census. Why? Because he was not delighting in the Lord. He was delighting in his might, you see. Then back of this, of the fact that he numbered them, is the awful sin of unbelief. David was trusting numbers rather than God. Now, look again here at this 21st chapter, and I'll pass over verse 4, but notice verse 5. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew sword, and Judah was four hundred threescore and ten thousand men that drew sword. Now, in Israel, he had a million, one hundred thousand men. And in Judah, there were five hundred thousand. Now, when Moses took the census, there was six hundred and three thousand. David has a million more than this man Moses did even. Now, will you look at something? What a contrast between David here and the little shepherd boy that came into the camp and saw this great giant, Goliath, strutting up and down and defying Israel. And this little shepherd boy didn't take any kind of a census at that time. He didn't want to number the people then, the army. He just said, let me go out after him. And how did he do it? Well, he trusted the Lord. He went out with a sling and five stones. My friend, you do not need God when you've got a million men. If you've only got a slingshot and five stones, you'll need God. And I'm afraid that today, the position that our nation is in, we're the greatest nation. I'm frankly getting a little weary of hearing that. I imagine the people in the Roman Empire got tired of hearing that also. And they did in Babylon, and certainly they did in Greece, and they did in Egypt. Those kingdoms are long since gone. Why? Because they trusted in armies. And don't misunderstand me. We're not to be fanatics and fools. An army is necessary. You need protection. But when your confidence is in that, you see, Joab says to David, David, they're all yours. You can't have any more. And all that are there, they are yours. Why count them and count in numbers? God has given you these people. It'll be adequate with God, of course. But David made a census. And today, with our atom bombs, hydrogen bombs, we don't need God. But I'm of the opinion we do need God, my friend. We're trusting the wrong things in our day. David's great sin here was unbelief. And I know that does not register with many of you listening today. 
because that is not a great sin in the church. Now, if you would walk into church next Sunday morning drunk, I tell you, you'd be in trouble if you're a church member. But if you walk in there in unbelief next Sunday morning, nobody would be any the wiser. And if they were, they would not think that that was very serious at all. God thought it was serious. And it was Satan that always puts unbelief in our minds and our hearts not to trust God. We trust men and armies and not God. This is the sin of statistics. May I say that They trust mathematics and not the maker. They trust the computer and not Christ. They trust in numbers and not the name of the Lord. Listen to the psalmist. David learned his lesson. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man, my friend. (laughs) And David was putting his confidence in man. He learned his lesson. That's Psalm 118.8. And then Psalm 71.1. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. And actually, do we really trust God? Do we really believe God? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the Lord Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin. What kind of sin? Because they believe not on me. And the apostle says that which is not of faith is sin. This is the sin of David, and it was real sin. David began to see that this was a terrible thing. Will you notice verse 8 here? And David said unto God, I've sinned greatly because I've done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I've done very foolishly. Now, the Lord's going to put before David several avenues. He can actually make a choice of punishment. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Now this is verse 10. Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David, said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee either three years famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying all the coasts of Israel. Now, therefore, advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Now, listen to David, and this is tremendous. This is great. Oh, this is outstanding. I hope you agree with me by now that David was a great man. (laughs) But he was human, like I am and you are. He stumped his toe, he had his faults, he committed his sins. But he never lost his salvation and he never lost his zeal and desire for fellowship with God. And he knew God. Listen to him. Verse 13, David said unto Gad, I'm in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Now, here is the man that was trusting man. He had a census made. Now he sees. I think that David is an old man now. I think he looked back and remembered that little shepherd boy that went out with his slingshot. 
and those five smooth stones. And at that time, David was trusting the Lord, you remember. Oh, his testimony. But he does like a great many of us. We trust God for salvation, but we don't trust him for the problems of life. And David now, he looks around about his enemies, and they are in great number now, of course. They're giant nations. And David wonders whether his arm is big enough. He didn't think whether his God was big enough. His God was bigger than the giant. His God's bigger than all the nations. But David takes a census. How many times have you and I taken a census? We didn't really trust God. We put our faith in something else. Didn't really trust him. And now David says, don't let me fall into the hand of man. I don't want to trust him. I want to fall in the hands of God. Why? Because he's merciful. David had learned that God is merciful. I'm afraid many of us haven't learned that either. He hath not dealt with us according to our iniquity. He hasn't rewarded us according to our sin. If he did, we'd be in a bad way today. You know why? God is merciful. And he's merciful in salvation. You know, God holds out salvation to a lost world. And on what basis? Why, he is the mercy seat. You remember John says in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. What is propitiation? Mercy seat. He has an abundance of mercy. And all you have to do if you want to be saved, friend, go into court with God, plead guilty, <laughs> and then ask for mercy. He's got plenty of it. That's the way he'll save you. There's a pardon for you. You must claim it. Then there's the mercies of God and providence. I look back on my life, and I think, oh, how good he's been. He's merciful today toward an unsaved world. Why didn't last night? Why didn't judgment come? Because God is merciful. He's coming someday, but he's long-suffering. He's merciful. And he's merciful to us. He pitteth his children. He looks upon us. And then, my friend, may I say to you, there's mercies of God for the future. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he's good. Psalm 136, 1. God will never cease to be merciful. It's not a happy disposition with him. It's not a development of character. He didn't read the book, How to Make Friends Influence People. God is merciful. And David casts himself on the mercy of God. Now, we saw last time in the first part of chapter 21, David's greatest sin. And that greatest sin did not involve Bathsheba at all. Might call it maybe David's other sin. But this is the sin of numbering the people. And it revealed pride, of course, but there's something deeper than that. It reveals unbelief on the part of David. One time, as a little shepherd boy, he could go out and meet a giant with a slingshot and five smooth stones because that giant had four sons sitting over there in the army. 
and he knew they'd come out to help Papa. And David was ready for all of them. Now we find that David has a great army, a million and a half men. He wants them numbered. He's looking to the man, his army, rather than to God. Before he had looked to God. Now, this was a great sin, a sin of unbelief on the part of God's king. And so he now is told by the prophet Gad that he is to be judged. He's given a choice of three judgments. And David thinks them over. And he recognizes that it was his sin, but the people were to be involved in the judgment since he was the king and they were involved in his sin because it's interesting how people follow the leaders of a nation. And that was true in David's case. And he certainly set a bad example for them. David, though, didn't want to pick any one of these. One of them would mean he'd fall in the hands of his enemies. David says, I don't want to fall in the hands of man. I'll fall in the hands of God. Now let him pick the judgment. And he cast himself upon the mercy of God. And he says, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Now that was David's response. Now notice what God did. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, there fell of Israel 70,000 men. God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld. He repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, It's enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. David lifted up his eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Now notice, this is a marvelous prayer that David prays here. He takes full responsibility for his sin. And may I say David has changed a great deal. There was a time when he committed that sin with Bathsheba. He wasn't going to say a word about it, you know. Even Uriah the Hittite was murdered. David was responsible for it. It was David pushing the blame out for someone else, you see. And he's trying to cover up. But not now. David's learned his lesson. He stands absolutely naked before God as far as his heart is concerned. And he says to the Lord, I'm responsible. I did this thing, and let the judgment come upon me. Now will you notice verse 18. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and set up an altar under the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now that threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, I was there, I walked up and down on that threshing floor. 
That today is Mount Moriah. That's the place where the Mosque of Omar is today. That's the temple area. That's where the temple was to be built. And so we find that it was actually not David who chose that spot. It was God who chose that spot. But David certainly concurred with it. Now, we are told here then, David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons with him hid themselves. Now, Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Now, this is Ornan's threshing floor. In fact, he was threshing wheat at this particular time. Now, when I was there, it was the harvest season. It was just beginning. And every afternoon, the wind would come up. That's the way they thrashed in that day. They took the grain to the top of the hill, and when the wind would come up in the afternoon, they'd pitch it up in the air, and then the chaff would be blown away. The good grain would fall down on the threshing floor. And I sat one day in the room at the hotel, and I looked over. I could just see right in this particular area. I could see Ornan's thrashing floor. I could see the temple area. And the wind came up, so much so that we closed the doors to the lanai at the hotel because the wind was really whistling through there, let me tell you. So we had to close it. That's the way they thrashed in that day. Now, that's Mount Moriah. It's up where Abraham offered his son. It's also at the other end of it, same mountain, same ridge, Mount Moriah. That's where Jesus is crucified, Golgotha, the place of a skull. I have two pictures. One picture I took of that sheaf of rock that they have taken out to make the roadway up to the Damascus Gate. And the wall of Jerusalem goes up over that ridge, very high. And where I took that picture, I took it to show that sheaf of rock. I turned right around from that position walked ten steps, and I took a picture of Golgotha. Same ridge, same elevation, all was together one time. They put that roadway through there. It was the same place our Lord was crucified. You see, God picked that place, my friend. It was God who chose it. Now we are told, Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee. Let my Lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meal offering. I give it all. This man says, I'll not only give you the property, the ground, I'll give you the wheat here, the crop that we are gathering, that you can have a meal offering, and I give you the instruments that are here, you can make wood for the altar, and I give you the oxen that you might have something to offer. Now, this man Ornan was very generous, you see. But listen to David again. David said to Ornan, Nay, 
but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. In other words, David said, I never offer unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. Oh, David was no freeloader. David was not riding piggyback in the Lord's work. He was carrying his full responsibility. And this is something that I think is quite wonderful. Now, will you notice? So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. He paid the full price for the threshing floor. Now, will you note? Here's something that's very important. David built there an altar under the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And may I say that this man David now makes a sacrifice. Now the Lord commanded the angel. This is verse 27. He put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. Now, where was that sword put? Later on, put in the side, that spear went in the side of Jesus Christ. And as somebody said, I got into the heart of God through a spear wound. That's the way we did it. Verse 28, And at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. And the sacrifices now were thanksgiving. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of the burnt offering, were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And after all, the ark was with him. And that was where God met, because on it was the mercy seat, and God dwelt between the cherubim. That's where he met with his people. I want you to see something that's very important. Where David put this altar is where the temple was built. Here we find the place of sacrifice. This is where God met with his people. David called upon God for mercy. And we have seen last time we saw the mercy of God in the past. That's the mercy of God in salvation. And he has been gracious unto us. Someone has said, what is mercy? Well, it's translated elsewhere, loving kindness. That's another wonderful word. A little girl in Sunday school, her teacher asked the class the question, says, what is loving kindness? And so this little girl had the best answer I've ever heard. She says, when you go to your mama and ask her for a piece of bread, says, that's kindness when she gives it to you. But when she puts jam on it, that's loving kindness. My friend, loving kindness, mercy. Now, it's wonderful. Our God is a merciful God. But did you know God doesn't save us by mercy? He can't save us by mercy. God just can't be big-hearted. I think we tried to make that clear last time that God just can't be big-hearted like that, my friend. He has to make a way of salvation. And he just can't be a sentimental old gentleman. You see, the penalty must be paid 
the sin must be dealt with. And God today just doesn't save by mercy. And he doesn't save by love either. God can't save you by love, friends. He loves you, and he'll extend mercy to you. But he can't save you that way. Well, somebody said, you said that God saves us in mercy. And we see his mercy in so You do, but that's not the way he saves you. The Bible says, by grace are ye saved through faith. It's not by love. It's not by mercy. It's by grace. And what does that mean? Well, that means, friends, that Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Because God just can't open the back door of heaven, slip you in under cover of darkness, and he's not going to let down the bars of heaven. Your sin has to be dealt with. God's just not being sentimental. He's not shutting his eyes to sin when he saves you. A penalty has to be paid. You are a guilty sinner before God. But when you trust Christ, you see, he died for you 1,900 years ago. Now, again, look at our verse. He is the propitiation. He's the mercy seat. Now, what is the mercy seat? It was the top of the ark. You see, that's what David has brought up to Jerusalem, is that ark. And on top of it was a mercy seat. But the high priest went in there once a year, and he put blood on it. And that changed the throne of God to the throne of mercy. Now, the reason that God can extend mercy to you is because Christ died for you. And that's the only way he can. And isn't it wonderful that he has a way today? He doesn't show favors. He doesn't have a group of little pets. There's no respect of persons of him. You'll come and accept the sacrifice that Christ made for you on the cross. God saves you. Now, David knew that. And there are a lot of church members don't know that today. David put up this altar, and he offered on it a burnt sacrifice. That burnt sacrifice speaks of the person of Christ. He offered a peace offering. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. And may I say to you that God extends mercy. There is a mercy seat today. We have a great high priest. He's ascended into the heaven. And we're invited to come to him. By the way, have you come to him? It's all you have to do. He's prepared to extend mercy because he died for you. But you'll have to come his way. We have a great high priest, friends. He's passed into the heavens. He's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet he was without sin. Now we are told, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. That's what we need is mercy and find grace. And that's something else that we need because he saves us by grace to help in time of need, friends. Now, the reason God can be merciful to you, the reason that God can save you by grace is because Christ died for you. That's the message that we have here. Now, in chapter 22, we come to the last division of First Chronicles, and here we have David's preparation and organization for building the temple. That's 22 to 29. Now, all of this is relative to David's preparation for building the temple. 
He did not build it. He's talking in this chapter to his son Solomon, and he explains two things. One thing is that God won't let him build it, that he's a bloody man, but that his son Solomon, a man of peace, will build the temple, but that he has gotten together all the material. He's got the place for it, and he's already organized the building of it. His friend Hiram, king of Tyre, will furnish the stone. And this is something that I think you need to note. All the way now from chapter 22 through chapter 29, we have the organization, the gathering of materials, and the enthusiasm of David for building the temple. God would not let him build it. That's one thing. David giving all of his attention to this very important matter. Now, the second thing is, I must repeat it again, First Chronicles gives us God's viewpoint. Now, God's viewpoint is that the temple is the most important project that David had in mind. Now, David had a housing project. We saw that. He built many houses in Jerusalem. He had urban development. He began all that. But that was not the important thing. The important thing was the building of the temple. Why? My friend, until a man or a people are right with Almighty God, may I say that all of these subsidiary subjects, they must sink into insignificance until that first is established. Now, when that is established, then urban development is important then a poverty program is very much in order. David had a poverty program. When he brought the ark up, why, I tell you, he had a line up of folk that were there. They all had food stamps, and they were there in line. And David was handing out the groceries. Why? Well, because the spiritual part has been settled. Now today, there is corruption in governments moving in to urban development, corruption in the poverty program. We hear of corruption today in government. And the news seems to think that if you put the emphasis on these material things, you've solved the problems of the world. My friend, man is far from solving the problems of the world because he hasn't solved the major problem And the major problem is a relationship with God. And that temple speaks of that relationship with God. It speaks also of that which is spiritual. From God's viewpoint, that was important. And in this book that gives us God's viewpoint, it's not what we had back in 1st and 2nd Kings. It wasn't continual warfare and intrigue and petty things. Now it's the high and lofty business of establishing a right relationship with God. And actually, when you begin to look back at history, it's quite interesting. We think today of Great Britain, the nation that for many years ruled the world. The saying was that the sun never set on the British Empire, control more of the world than probably any other nation ever had. Tremendous influence that Great Britain had. Oh, you can criticize them. I recognize that. 
They were not any more perfect than we are. But they at one time ruled the world. And when you begin, though, to look back at history, it wasn't really what took place in 10 Downing Street. It actually wasn't what really took place in Parliament. It wasn't what took place under old Big Ben over there, that great clock. You know, probably the most important thing was when a young fellow by the name of John Wesley went upstairs down at Aldersgate. Thank God for that, because we were still reaping benefits from that. And then right down the street from there, not very far, there is the place where Wesley began his preaching. There's a graveyard there. They put him out. The organized church did, the state church. He went out and stood on a tombstone, started preaching, moved into the fields. And there came a spiritual movement that even Lloyd George said that John Wesley is the greatest Englishman that ever lived, did more for the British Empire. But I want to tell you that that day, the television program and the radio programs and the newspapers and the magazines didn't think it was very important that young man out there preaching on a tombstone. But he saved Great Britain. That is, he was God's instrument for saving Great Britain from a revolution and enabled them to begin a movement that brought civilization throughout the world. And you can belittle a colonial policy all you want to. And Great Britain bogged down and was as wrong as we've ever been. But the important thing is, there was a movement that sent missionaries throughout the world, and it brought a civilizing and Christian influence throughout the world. And my friend, I think the most prejudiced person in the world can look back and say those days were better than these days, and that this godless age in which we're living is not getting anywhere. May I say to you, you want God's viewpoint? God says... When David began to prepare to build that temple, that was all important to me. That's more important than battles he fought, more important than the wars he fought. In fact, it's more important than anything that David ever did. We're now considering that. Now we read here in chapter 22, verse 1, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather together the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he sent masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. Now, David has determined that the temple is to be built there on the threshing floor of Ornan. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails, for the doors of the gates, for the joinings and brass in abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians, and they of Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Hiram was king of Tyre and Sidon, and he was the one that provided the stone, and he helped David. And now verse 5, And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And believe me, he was tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical. Notice that language, magnifical, of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation for it, 
So David prepared abundantly before his death. Now, that's the reason, friends, that I say that it's not Solomon's temple. It's David's temple. And now we're getting it from God's viewpoint. God says it. God says David prepared abundantly before his death. Well, then why didn't David build the temple? Well, I'll tell you why. Again, listen to God's viewpoint. Verse 6, Then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house under the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house under my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Now, this ought to be the answer to those who criticize David for being a bloody man. As we've said, these wars were forced on him. As long as you and I live in this world, if we stand for the right... We're going to have to fight, my friends. Now, as I've said before, our enemy is not a flesh and blood enemy. Our enemy is spiritual. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But you'll have to stand for something. And as someone has said, those that don't stand for anything will fall for anything. And they generally do. The reason that people go off today, they don't go off all of a sudden. They go off when they refuse to stand for the things of God. Now, this man David was a bloody man. Nobody has said it better than God said it. God said, David, you're a bloody man. You cannot build a temple. God is not for war. He's opposed to war. His name is not Mars. God is opposed to war. He's for peace. His son is the prince of peace, and he's going to bring peace on this earth. But my friend, as long as there's evil and sin, but God wouldn't let David build a temple because of that. He was a man of war. Now he says, verse 9, Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I'll give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. But it wasn't permanent. And this man Solomon was the man of rest. God says, I'll give peace. But the one that one day stood up before these people, when the religious rulers rejected him, he said, you remember, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Now, he didn't say, I'll give you rest. He said, I'll rest you. I'll do what Solomon was not able to do. He was the son of David. David's line. He's the one today that can bring rest and peace and solace and quietness to the human soul today. He wants to come in because God, my friend, is merciful today. And he's merciful because his son died for you. This is God's way. Won't you come his way? Won't you accept his overture? He has moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart. He won't come any farther. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, friends, we're putting in at verse 10 today. Now, David's talking to his son, Solomon. I don't think he was very much interested in having Solomon become king. He was a pantywaist anyway, 
Lord Jesus said, when you went out to see John the Baptist, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? No, you saw a wind-shaking reeds. What did you go out to see? Man with soft clothing? No, he's rugged. Camel's hair, rugged individual. May I say to you, the Lord Jesus said those with soft clothing, the pantywaists are in king's palaces. Solomon was brought up there. He's brought up in the court of the women. One of the reasons Solomon put around him so many women. He's accustomed to that. He wasn't accustomed to out yonder in the rugged terrain of that land, defending himself as his father David was. And I'm not carrying any sort of excuse for David because he wasn't a very good father. But believe me, David and Solomon were far apart. And the explanation is found, of course, in their background. And so David now is talking to his son Solomon. He says, you're going to build a temple. Oh, I want to encourage you and get you enthusiastic about it because it was in my heart. God wouldn't let me because I'm a bloody man. May I say to you, don't come by and say, oh, David was a man after God's own heart and he got by with anything. He wasn't enabled to do the thing he wanted to do above everything on top side of this earth. That was build God a temple and God wouldn't let him. My friend, there's been many a man today because of sin in his life that God has never let him reach the goal he wanted to reach. Sin drags us all down. It dragged David down. Listen to him. Verse 10, "...he shall build an house for my name." He's speaking of Solomon. He shall be my son, I'll be his father, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And David says to Solomon, this is what God told me, you'd be his son, and that you would build a temple, and you'd establish your throne, for it's my throne. He'll establish it forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with thee, and prosper thou, and build the house of the Lord thy God, as he hath said of thee. My house. David was encouraging this boy, and he knew he needed encouraging. After all, he had soft clothing. He'd been brought up in the court of the women, and he's not a very aggressive fellow. Solomon reaped the benefits of the reign of David. It can be said truly of him as the Lord Jesus said, "...other men have labored." We've entered in to their labors. Solomon entered into the labors of another, and that was his father David. Now he says, listen to him here, verse 12, "...only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding, and give thee charge concerning Israel, that thou mayest keep the law of the Lord thy God." And he's urging his son to follow along in his ways. That is God's ways, not David's ways. I think David began to detect, I'm sure Bathsheba had detected in Solomon some of the traits of his father David. One of the traits was his weakness, probably in two different directions. One was in the direction of women, by the way. And if you want to find out the advice she gave to Solomon, here's the advice of David to Solomon, but if you want the advice of his mother, read the last chapter of Proverbs. And that's the advice of Bathsheba to her son Solomon. Now notice... Then shalt thou prosper, if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong 
and of good courage, dread not, nor be dismayed. He knew this boy would get discouraged. He knew that he would be a weakling. And he's now telling him, be a man. That was the important thing. Now, verse 14, Now behold, in my trouble I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and a thousand thousand talents of silver and of brass and iron without weight, for it's in abundance. Timber also and stone have I prepared, and thou mayest add thereto. David said to him, You won't need to stint in building this temple. You won't have to cut corners. There's no shortage of material. And he said, In the days of my trouble, in the days that I've been king here, I've attempted to build up this kingdom. And in all that trouble, I was gathering material all the time for the temple. Don't you see, friends, that God had taken note of that? And God had rewarded David along that line, and that actually he is a man after God's own heart. God wanted this. He wanted the spiritual part emphasized. And David wanted that above everything else. And by the way, what is really the goal of your life? What is the ambition that you have? We have a generation of young people without any purpose, a goal in life whatsoever. Well, I think it's true. They've been brought up in homes of affluence and no Christian direction, no pointing out yonder to something that is worthwhile, something that is glorious, something that is great. These young people haven't been pointed in that direction. They weren't pointed that direction in their home. And my friend, the school is not doing its job. Now, I may sound to you like a heretic and a real revolutionary. I don't think it would hurt to close up many of our schools today. I don't think they're doing young people a bit of good whatsoever until moral training and direction and discipline is given. And I say to you, what is the purpose of living today? The suicides among young people. And then when you see them, that have become this hippie type over the world today, wandering around aimlessly. Your heart goes out to them because somebody's failed. I think Papa and Mama failed. I think the schools have failed. Think the churches fail. May I say to you, at least, oh, David's given direction to the boy. You've got a worthy goal. Build God a house. What is your ambition today? Well, let me give you something that's given to me early in life. The question is, what is the chief end of man? That's in the catechism. I used to know it all. <laughs> Don't now, but I remember this one. It's a good one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's worthwhile, friends. Oh, I wish today I could get you enthusiastic about not baseball or football or any kind of ball, but get you interested not in the things that are around us today. And frankly, I wish I could get you interested not even in church work. That may sound revolutionary also. I wish I could get you interested in Jesus Christ. 
his person. Say, he told me I'm going to be with him forever. (laughs) I tell you, and since he's God, apparently his way is going to prevail, not mine. He's got something glorious in view. I haven't, because I don't know what's out there, but I'm interested. This is something we ought to be able to say with Paul. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, David's a man after God's own heart, because he had something high and noble and lofty in mind. Now, notice what he says here. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, there are workmen with thee in abundance, hewers and workers of stone and timber, and all manner of cunning men for every manner of work. Seed reigns with Hiram. Take care of all of the building. Of the gold and silver and brass and iron, there's no number. Arise, therefore, and be doing, and the Lord be with thee. Get busy, young man. Here's a gold that's worthwhile. Now, verse 17, David also commanded all the princes of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And hath he not given you the inhabitants of the land into thine hand? And the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build ye the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built to the name of the Lord. Now, friends, whoever you are, wherever you are today, I don't care what you're doing. And I'm speaking to those that are Christians. You may have sunk down to a pretty low level in your living. Maybe that All you do in church work is gossip. (laughs) Maybe all you do is find fault with the preacher. Maybe all you do is is do nothing. That you're standing on the promises, but sitting on the premises, as I heard this young country preacher say, and I thought it was pretty good. A lot of folk doing that. May I somehow or another today alert you. I'd like to stick a pen in and say to you today, Oh, my friend, wake up. Come alive and move out toward Jesus Christ. I don't care what you're doing. Tell him you want to go along with him, that you want to bring the spiritual into your life and make it important. Do something definite. Do something positive. Do something about it, friend. Don't just sit there. Just don't stand there. Do something right now. Have contact, a personal contact with Jesus Christ, and start going. Get busy. That's what David said to this boy Solomon. He really put a pen in him, let me tell you.